Amen. Thank you, Alex. Hey, good morning, Founder Church. My name is Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here. It's a privilege for me to be up here preaching God's word to you today. Robert Green, our senior pastor, is taking a well-deserved week off. He's been on for a lot of consecutive Sundays and excited I am to continue this series we're walking through in 1 Corinthians where we're asking the questions, hey, what divides us? And then we're addressing those things. I didn't do this at 930, but I'll do this now. I was at a conference earlier this week with some other people who uh, sort of do my role. And a resounding conclusion was from a lot of these guys that our church has got to start, our churches have got to start addressing issues in society. No longer can we sit on the bench. No longer can we sit on the sidelines. But we must be people who would confront the ideas and the ideologies of the world and see how we can reconcile those things with gospel truths. So this has been a rich series, and I really am excited to preach today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've got a Bible you brought with you, we want to honor you for that, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you didn't bring one and you'd like a paper Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, and if not, we'll have it on the screen here in a second. But This is what we'll be looking at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is that there are some things that are owed to some among us as brothers and sisters. And then we'll take a look at what is owed to those who are yet to be brothers and sisters. Those who have yet to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by their acknowledgement and their belief in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sin and salvation the people who have yet to do that. So what we're looking at this week is kind of in line with what we looked at last week. If you're a student of the Bible or you've been around scripture for a while, you will know that 1 Corinthians and the other books of the Bible were not written with the chapter and the verse dividers. Those are for us, for reference, for moments like this. But they were written as one long, ongoing, continuous book or letter. So we see that it's easy for us sometimes in our reading to pick segments and sections and forget that they hold hands, but we'll look at how this is similar but different to last week's sermon that Robert preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 around food offered to idols, which seems like a great Mother's Day sermon. I'm sure your moms needed that. Happy Mother's Day. Let's talk about eating food in pagan temples. But we saw what we owe to one another, how those that are strong among us might sacrifice for those that are weak among us. And we see Paul in chapter 9 taking on a display of his own weakness and what that models for us as we would think about not leading with our strength, but our weakness so that we could magnify God's strength in us and through us. So this really is a one-point sermon today. If you've been around me, you know that I'm going to tell you what I want to tell you before I tell you. Really one point today, and it's this concept, open-handed generosity open-handed generosity. Generosity was easy for me as I thought about what to point people towards today because it screams generosity in this passage. But the first part, open-handed, is something that I thought about for a while. I have an almost four-year-old at home who I love, and uh, I don't think I realized until I was a parent how much your children try to steal things from you. Like, Always, every drink I have, every morsel of food I could eat, it's no longer mine. It could potentially become hers. So I end up drinking a lot of drinks and then immediately raising them over the top of my head like this, back and forth. I operate with some of the things in my life with a closed fistedness to keep it for me. And while that's about snacks in this illustration, there are other areas of my life that I white knuckle 
and I refuse to give up control. So we'll look today at open-handed generosity. But we'll look at it in three sections. The first is what should be given. The second is what's given up. And the third is what is granted as a gift, what's gained. So I'll pick up here in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll walk through this together. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written within the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It's written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Welcome to church. We're talking about money today. (laughs) I love Robert and our church for many reasons, but one of those is that we frequently talk about money. Because if you've had any money for any period of time in your life, you know how easy it is to become idolatry for us. Money becomes our security and our provision and our true God. And a life of open-handed generosity is, in fact, about money, but it's not just about money. We're going other places today, but to set the table for a life of open-handed generosity, Paul starts off speaking about money. And we see him reference this in Deuteronomy 25, one of the first books written in our scripture that would set the culture and the life for people following after the God Yahweh. We would see this, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Really strange. I don't think about oxen very often. Like I said, I have a small child, so I'm in the season of life where I'm going, A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat. When I get to O, I'm not going to ox. So oxen are not something I think about often. But what we see here in the previous chapters in Deuteronomy 24 into that cutoff in 25, verse 4 that we see, there are instructions given about the least and the last in society, the sojourner, the foreigner, the alien, the widow, the people who would have no ability to provide monetarily for themselves or on their own. So God, always gracious, always generous, God sets the stage of the story of scripture and sets the temperature in the lives of believers with open-handed generosity in instituting laws like what we would see in gleaning, that the outside of people's fields were left unharvested so that people who did not own anything or could not work were still able to provide for themselves out of the generosity that God would call others to exhibit. And we see a turn here in 25.4 where it goes from talking about people to talking about even oxen as they would work and they would pull their cart down the field as the harvest happened. Remember, this is an ancient agrarian society. There's no F-150 to put things in the back of. It's a cart on an ox. So as he would go down that the ox deserved 
too get to participate in the labor that he was putting in. Martin Luther, the great reformer who stood up against many atrocities in the Catholic Church in an era where it had lost itself, Martin Luther wrote uh, many things about the abuses of the church and their uh, improprietary nature with money. But what we would find here is fascinating that Luther, as he preached one day in and around this passage, he said explicitly, this verse was not written for oxen because they do not know how to read, (laughs) which is fascinating, but it attunes us to how we become open-handed and generous people. And we see this, Paul, as he writes First Timothy to a young protege, he's thinking about the future of the church. He uses the same scripture and he says, the scripture says, what? You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So we would see again, Paul speaking, not just of himself, but in a principle to all who would do gospel work, that there is a financial partnership that exists for the ones that lead and the ones that are led. I want to take us to Jesus because I know often in conversations around generosity and tithing that people uh, will say, well, Jesus never spoke about tithing. And I look my face back at them aghast and wonder, are we reading the same Bible? So this is what we find Jesus speak on concerning tithing In Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus, the master teacher, with beautiful allegory here, would talk about how the scribes and the Pharisees would be so committed to the institution of tithing that they would get, we contribute materially, we contribute financially so that the gospel work can go forward. They would get that on paper, but they would forsake what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, the soft stuff, love, justice, mercy, compassion. They were fine making the gospel go forward with their checkbook, but with their life, They had forsaken the things that Jesus had called them to do, to be gospel bringers in and of themselves. What's fascinating here is that he says, you're blind guides. You're not setting the right temperature for people who look to you for leadership. The straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel is fascinating. In the wine that the Pharisees and the scribes would drink, they would take little strainers, little scoopers, and they would scoop out the bugs that were on the top so that they would not be uh, ceremoniously unclean because it was not kosher to eat bugs, which praise God for that, right? But the second thing, they are swallowing a camel, the camel, the largest land animal that they had context for in Palestine, and something that was also unclean. They had forsaken the spirit of the law in keeping the letter of the law. So in this, we see Jesus say on both ends and Paul say on both ends, some of you, you give well with your pocketbook, but you don't give well with your life. And others of you, the inverse is true. As I read this week, I love this. Uh, A writer said that Paul points out the common sense principle. I love that. The common sense principle that those who work hard should benefit from their investment. 
He uses lots of examples that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that the soldier would receive wages from the government spoils. A farmer would eat from the vineyard as it produces. A shepherd would drink from the flock that he cares for. The ox, again, would eat as it goes down the field. And the plowman and the thresher would put work in on the front end and on the back end to see a harvest. It's a common sense principle that we get in places, but sometimes we miss in circles of faith that those who lead and those who invest are monetarily due contribution. I appreciate us and our culture, and I think what the church gets right. We don't lord that in authority over people, but we invite you to integrate all pieces of your life in holiness, and open-handed generosity in your finances is one of those things. Robert says often that tithing is the training wheels for a life of generosity. That as we learn to live with less, we see that God is a God who provides, and that he accomplishes much through us. Generosity is how we get to ride shotgun in building the kingdom. We bring what we have to what God's doing, and he makes growth happen. And we see Paul write this in 9 verse 11. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? It's important that Paul would bring this paradigm out because what we would see in Greco-Roman culture at the time is that there was this idea, this heresy, that the spiritual things were good and the material things were evil, but Paul would say they're both of value. We give the spiritual thing and you contribute the material thing. This is good and right. But there's something implied here that we don't need to miss, and it's important for us in our own lives, not just in the church and as we think about our finances and uh, the ministries that you contribute to outside of here, not just that, but the nature of what we are investing in and the types of gifts we are giving as we think about generosity we would see this, that the value of the spiritual gift is greater than the value of the material gift. Both are necessary. Both are right. Both are good. But we would see the emphasis on the spiritual gift that would be given by people who sow spiritual things, that they would be rewarded and the gospel would be furthered by the gift of material things. What did Jesus say? Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where thief break in and steal and moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. The next thing, we look at what should be given and we go to what is given up. What is given up? We'll read the first section here, pick it up in verse 15. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is fascinating. It almost feels like a little bit of back and forth, like Paul slipped up and forgot what he had just written. But he sets an example for the rightness of material contribution for people who would sow spiritual things into others. He sets it up for churches and for ministries to have what they need to survive and to thrive in the coming days. But we find here that Paul is replying to what the Corinthians wrote to him. We often forget that a lot of times, like in the case in 1 Corinthians, that a letter was written to Paul and he responded with this letter. What 
happened in the day and what we can uh, read into and infer that the Corinthians were looking for in Paul was that they expected for him to operate in a way that a lot of other orators and traveling teachers did in that time. See, in uh, the earlier portions of this book, as we preached through it, we spoke about these people called the sophists, that they would be these people who would travel from place to place and that they would have higher knowledge and that they would advertise and advocate for this higher knowledge. And often they even preached against the material nature of the world and would say that it was evil, but they would themselves become really, really rich while they did it. But in return of them getting a lot of money, they would end up in the pockets of some people who they would teach. You would essentially, if you had power or money or any form of authority, you would kind of get your guy or get your girl and you would have your own dedicated teacher who felt like they were obligated to you because of some financial authority that you had in their life. And Paul said financially what you were probably taught by your mama when you were growing up, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Paul would say, if you're not gonna give with open-handed generosity, I don't want your money because even without your money, I'm going to take the gospel places. And it's fascinating because what we see here is I ask the question, what is given up? We see Paul giving up something that he is rightfully entitled to. I kept coming back to this word this week as I was studying entitlement. Entitlement's so complicated because there are some things that you rightfully are entitled to as a man and a woman, uh, maybe as a husband and a wife, as an employee or an employer. There are some things in God's economy that we are entitled to. But entitlement and a mentality of entitlement, it is a complicated thing for the Christian life. When I think about entitlement, I think about Disney and Pixar's greatest theological contribution into the condition of man, when they uh, told a story of these seagulls in Finding Nemo. And uh, if you're familiar with the great work of art of Finding Nemo circa 2003, then you would know that these seagulls say, what, let's do it together, church? Mine, 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 right, there we go. I was worried that the, uh, the 930 was a little too old for that, so thanks for holding down, guys. But we see this, that these guys would say, mine, 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 obnoxiously. That that was their mantra. That was their paradigm. Mine, 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 mine. And there's a lesson there, I'm sure. If the seagulls would have operated in a more selfless way, they could have eaten Dory and Marlin, and uh, that would have been the end of the movie. Pixar never would have sold to Disney. Disney would be $4 billion richer then, but poorer now. So let's all work together. And I think there's a spirit there, sure, but that's not where I'm going today. How often are we guilty of going I, me, mine in our life? That we would reject the example of open-handed generosity and we would say I, me, mine. Entitlement, hard to shake. As I read on entitlement, I came across this quote by Kent Hughes. He's a pastor and author, and it read me. He said, when people view themselves as the protagonist in their own special life narrative, they end up running on a sense of entitlement. The protagonist of their own special life narrative. So here's the question, church. Who is the protagonist in your story? Is your story about you or is your story about Christ? Is your story about what you can get or is your story about what you can give?
But as I read on entitlement, I thought about this, came across this, and thought it was great that there are three things that entitlement and entitlement mentality always is faithful to give us. The first is a ruined ability to receive encouragement and gifts. Think about it. When you feel like you're entitled to the world, any compliment you get, any gift you get, it's never enough. Why? Because you deserve it all. I could preach this sermon and I can anticipate that afterwards you guys would come to me and go, ah, that was a 10 out of 10 and I'm giving my life to international missions and I'm moving to Africa tomorrow. Well, what sense of reality would I be operating in at that point? Anything less than that would be a crippling disappointment for me. It ruins our ability to receive encouragement and gifts. The second is like it that we have a world and a people that are what? Out to get us. Do you feel like you have to have an enemy? Is there always someone set against you? Is your life always one conflict into the next conflict? We do have a very real enemy. It's Satan who's come to steal, kill, and destroy, who roams the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. We have a very real enemy. But do you make enemies and people who stand against you out of the people who love you and are shoulder to shoulder with you? Because entitlement, where we think we deserve it all, creates for us a world and a people that are out to get us. And the third is just that, that it creates for us a distorted view of reality. That because we deserve everything, anything less than everything is worth nothing. Entitlement. So we see Paul here say, I was entitled to some financial things, but I have given them up for you twofold to set an example for your life and to call you into deeper levels of generosity, not just with your money, but with the way that you would live. And this is where we pick up in verse 19. I'll read it here from the screen. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I'll pick it up here in the book. 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And here's where we get the verse most often, because the technical part before it, I became like this, I became like this, We'll clean it up in a second here together, friends. But this is where most of us stop and I think sometimes abuse this passage. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So we have a lot of this. I became like this to this and I became like this to this in the law, out of the law, What's going on here? Did Paul forget what he just forgot? What we see here is there are three categories that Paul would be writing about doing ministry to. The first is the Jew, the second is the Greek, and the third is the weak. The Jews, the Greeks, and the weeks. And we would find that Paul 
as he would go and do gospel ministry from town to town. If you're a student of the New Testament, a student of the book of Acts, a student of the life of Paul, you would see this pattern. That Paul would go from town to town and first he would go to the synagogue. He would find people who did not yet know the Christ. They were reading scripture that pointed towards the Messiah, towards this anointed chosen one who would come to set the world right. They knew that he was coming and Paul would step in and go, this is he, Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul would walk with them. He would walk with them through the scripture and he would illuminate that to them through the power of the Holy Spirit so that they might become saved. But while Paul did that, he stepped back into some Jewish customs that he had freedom from. We would see Paul would say this, not being outside of the law of God, but that I was under the law of Christ. It's interesting for us to look at that together, the law of God and the law of Christ. The distinctly Jewish Messiah came into the world and Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And as Jesus came and he said, you have heard it say unto you, Moses taught this, but I say unto you, Jesus says this. He took what the law set up to do, the way that the law pointed to the character and the ways of God, and Jesus breathed life into it and brought it fullness. So things like ceremonial and religious restrictions, which were so important for God to purify a people for himself so that a Messiah could come into, so that all could be saved. Those things no longer had a place, an active paradigm in the life of a first century believer. And that's what extends to us. But Paul, as he would do ministry to Jews, would go into a Jewish lifestyle. He would step back into dietary restrictions. He would step back into honoring the Sabbath in the way that Jewish custom would have it. He would step back into the order of their cultural engagement and worship to the Jew he became a Jew. Secondly, we would see that to the Greek, to those not under the law, he would be as one not under the law. Now, that's a hard line, and I think this is where we can begin to abuse this passage, that we become all things to all people that we might save some. It's easy for us to think, well, this means that I need to go and do this activity with this person if I want them to be my friend, and I can tell them about Jesus eventually. And Paul is really clear to say here that line that we just saw. It's not that he was underneath the Mosaic law of God, but that he was underneath the law of Christ, that he would follow Jesus's teachings and commandments, that he would be obedient to him as he sought to do ministry with people who existed a step outside. Why am I telling you all this? Why is it important that we set these things up? Because what I think we are guilty of doing often is that we see people who don't know Jesus and we go one of two ways. We go, they're too uptight, they're too finite, they're too limited, they're too narrow-minded. And we've not taken the time to be winsome to them and to understand their perspective. And the second thing with those outside of the law, we would say they're too wild, they're too unhinged. Who knows what they're going to do? They don't know their left from their right. They're too unstable, too unpredictable. And we wouldn't take the time to understand what their motivations are and who they are. And this third category we see are the weak. And the weak is different than what we see in the week last week, which were the weaker brother. 
This is the weak one who is unsaved. And this is someone who's so finite, they're so constitutionally weak inside of who they are, maybe because of a paradigm or a worldview or a perspective that they can't shake and they can't let go. All they are is the thing that they are. They can't get out of their own way. The Jew, the Greek, and the weak. So my question to you is this. If the verse says, all things to all people that I might save some, who are your some? Who's your some? Do you have people, a people, a person that you would long for their salvation? That you would know them, befriend them, learn what their hindrances are for the gospel and the gospel worldview? I think we miss this a lot as Christians. We miss this a lot as the church. We don't take the time to learn about people who aren't like us. We don't take the time to learn the real, deep, unvoiced questions of our city and our culture and people who exist outside of our faith. We think we know it all. We think we have it all. Because we have salvation, we do have all things. We have all things needed for life and godliness. But we think because we hold the answers that people should conform to us. But Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who are your some? Who do you long to see saved? Although you may not be the protagonist of your special life narrative, God has given you a unique, unreplicable life. Only you are in your family. Only you have your job. Only you live on the street that you live on. God's built a constellation of things in your life so that you can do faithful gospel work. But that's going to take open-handed generosity. Looking at someone and saying, I know I'm right. I know I have authority here, but I'm willing to lay that down to make a connection with you so that you can experience what I experience. All things to all people that I might save some. So we would see this for Paul, that he was willing to lay down his entitlements and that giving the spiritual gift to Paul was more significant than hiding behind his entitlement. Although he could have sat back on his hands and said, I have salvation, you don't. We'll see how this turns out at the end. Newsflash, not going to be good for you. Instead, Paul was so drawn to people, so had experienced the gospel in a profound way, that he had an insatiable passion to give the gospel to people, even if it meant he would be uncomfortable. We'll finish here with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So we see Paul as he calls people to open hand and generosity. Yes, in your money, but with your social and positional authority. He would say, run the race. 
In Mississippi, we would say, hitch up your britches. You got some work to do. He says, step into this life of open-handed generosity and do it with skill. Be calculated. Know what's required of you. He writes this in a culture, the uh, perennial Isthmian games were these uh, Olympic-style games that happened in Corinth. They probably happened when Paul was there, either in 49 or 51. And there were multiple events that happened, kind of an Olympic-style event would. And one of them was boxing. So people would go pull up and watch people hit each other in the face. But he would say, I'm not like an unskilled boxer. That's, I'm not one who's punching and missing my mark, but I am accurate. I am calculated. I know what's required for me as I live this life of open-handed generosity, where I'm willing to look at some rights and some things that I'm rightfully entitled to and recognize that I can give those things for the good of the gospel in the lives of people. I'm not much of a racer, You guys could probably tell that by the way that I'm built. But I do have uh, a hobby, which is a really obscure exercise hobby. I uh, indoor row on a Concept2 rower. And um, it's like what people who row crew on boats outside do whenever it's raining. So I do for fun what they do when they can't have fun, which probably says something about me. But I was in a competition uh, a couple of months ago, and I won this hammer. It's not engraved. It's literally just a hammer that I got out of a transparent bucket. Uh, But I won it for one of the two events that I did. The event that I actually won was an event that was uh, not the one that I'm the best at. It's more of a distance thing. Again, I'm built for speed, as you can tell. But I won it as one of the three people competing in the 30 to 39 division. So not particularly proud of that. But the second event, the one that I'm more proud of that I don't have a hammer for, was the stroke that I'm good at, the distance that I'm good at. It was uh, against some people, 30 people, got third place of 30, so that's better, uh, who rode crew at places like Tulane and LSU. So real people. And I was really proud of that because that race meant more, that test meant more. But right before I did that competition, uh, I took my girls with me on this trip. You guys know who are in any kind of competitive thing. Whenever you travel alone, you're more dialed in, but I thought it would be a great idea to take my wife and my three-year-old with me because I'm trying to build memories. And I, right before I did this event, about an hour, carried my three-year-old through, I don't know, about a third of the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans. She has legs but refuses to use them. So I was not on my A game for this race, but I knew the race that I wanted to win. I knew what race I wanted to win. It's important for me to invest in my girls. And my question to you is, what race are you trying to win? Are you running the right race? Are you running the race of I, me, mine? Or are you running the race of open-handed generosity? Are you running the right race? I want to invite Alex and the team back up and invite us to stand. And uh, as you stand up, if you'd uh, close your eyes and assume a, a prayerful posture, I just want to ask us a couple of questions as we think about this, have some application in real time. As you think about your life in regards of open-handed generosity, where can you give away more? What pockets of your life have you been unwilling to open your hands up in? Maybe for you today, it is your finances. You've seen the compelling nature of generosity in the Bible. 
seen it modeled in the life of people, even in the life of this church, but you've not taken a step to open up your hands with your finances, to trust God, to join him in a journey of generosity, to see that living with less while pursuing God's faithfulness, that he's going to be faithful to provide. Maybe for you, you've been close-handed in your relationships. Who are your some? If we're all things to all people that we might save some, who is it for you? Who's your one? Who are your few that need the gospel? And what is it that you can do to open up your hands, to give them time, to value them, to be a question asker? What do you need to do to be willing to lay down your entitlements, whether it's positional or proximal, so that you could see Jesus save them? And maybe it's a life of selfishness where you feel like you've been marked by I, me, mine where you've seen the cage that entitlement can build. Could you lay that down today? Jesus, we look to you. No one will be more open-handed and generous than you. Lord, you opened your hands to the nails of the cross and you gave everything. You bore our unrighteousness so that we could be made right with you. It's a free gift and we thank you for it, Jesus. So would that mark us, our security in you, the things we're entitled to with you, the way that we'll rule and reign with you in the end of all things. God, here, might we open our hands and partner with you in generosity. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. As Alex and the band lead us as we respond in worship, we want to also respond in prayer. I'll be down front. I want to have a microphone. If you've had a great joy in your life, uh, a prayer of need, uh, a desperate moment, it would be a privilege for me or some other of our staff and leaders to pray here you for at the front. Maybe for you, you're caught up on who is my one. And uh, you'd like to come to the altar to offer a prayer of desperation for God that he might save your one. Uh, but let's worship the Lord in song and in prayer.